This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's all about debt mistakes not to make. Not to make, which is such a good idea. Uh, and Blair's going to share some common mistakes that people often make when dealing with their debt. So we're going to learn some tips uh, for how not to solve your financial problems and steps you can take to help get money matters back on track. So first, Blair, is there any general advice you want to share about dealing with debt to get this segment started? Oh, sure, Elaine. You know, there's really, there's no one-size-fits-all solution uh, for getting out of debt, but just the whole idea that being in debt should not be a permanent state. You know, no one should hang around being in debt. It costs money. It often stops us from maximizing our income. It's just a constant drain, even mentally. Um, so the whole objective here is just to say there's always a way out. There's a way to move forward from debt, but there's certainly a few things you can do uh, that are going to make it more difficult to see that way forward or more costly. We're going to try to steer you away from some of those falls in today's session. Um, so for today, the first thing to talk about is, you know, just don't assume that a debt problem can't happen to you. Um, you know, even some of my advertisements say, you know, money problems can happen to anybody at any time. And it's something that's been proven true in my 12, 13 years of seeing clients directly. Uh, it's amazing the different scenarios that can conspire to take somebody uh, from, you know, the highest highs of finances to have, you know, tons of money, tons of equity, tons of disposable income uh, to the point where they're needing our help. And then conversely, to see somebody really emerge from an insolvency proceeding, uh, leave the debt behind, and then suddenly achieve more in their life than they were ever able to achieve before, especially being held back from debt. You know, what we've learned is under the whole idea that it can happen to anybody is that many of the time, many times what causes a financial difficulty is not an action that the individual takes, but it's something that just happened to them. Things were going just fine, uh, and then life just threw them a big left turn, um, something like an illness, an injury, or a health-related problem, whether it's yourself uh, or your own family member, uh, marital or relationship breakdown, so the cost of separating, the cost of reestablishing, uh, perhaps two households, could be some legal costs that can be just very financially catastrophic when a relationship breaks down. Um, obviously, the classic of job-related and job loss, um, you know, many people unexpectedly, whether it's a restructuring or a downsize, um, you know, they find themselves without a job through no fault of their own. Uh, and then what we're seeing, you know, more and more is just cost of living outpacing income. So as prices go up more and more, you have a family to feed, you need to keep a roof over, over everyone's head. Um, you know, sometimes that can just squeeze somebody financially. And as you look, well, there's nothing you could have done. You've maximized your income, your costs have gotten out of line, and you've relied on credit to, fi to fill that gap. Um, so really, we just want people to understand there's a lot of reasons why someone could come to have a debt problem and nobody should assume that they're immune from it it could never happen to them and i think uh at any given time you can look in our current situation whether it be a pandemic or out of control weather situations that put people in peril and like overnight dealing with a catastrophic uh situation that they did not plan for because it hasn't happened in a hundred years i mean yeah. this has been the biggest lesson i think that things can happen overnight so quickly uh and we have no control over stopping them from happening it's just what we do at this point 
That's exactly right, Elaine. Like we've we've all learned, you know, just the fragility of the status quo. Let's not assume that tomorrow is going to resemble yesterday because sometimes it doesn't, as we've seen. Um, But you know, what one final point before we move on to another thing, uh, another mistake not to make here is just really don't be focused on your credit report or your credit Mm. score as an indicator of your financial health. Um, You would be amazed the number of people that come into my office that have 800 credit scores, 750, 770, uh, but can't borrow another dollar from the bank are incredibly overextended and have spent huge amounts of money just making all their minimum payments to chase a great credit score. So quite often, a credit score is completely divorced from your overall financial health, and the people that are the most financially healthy might have a zero credit score because they're just not using any credit products or paying any interest each month. So definitely don't focus on that indicator. That's a great reminder. I love it when you talk about that. Uh, Really, really important because it's easy to get caught up in it. Are there other uh, sort of inaction mistakes that you can avoid in dealing with debt, Blair? Oh, certainly. So, you know, under a big category of financial housekeeping, uh, there's a number of things if you don't attend to them, and it's the whole idea, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. So just by doing a little bit over time, uh, you're not going to end up, you know, being really surprised. Uh, but these things can get away from you if you just let things coast. So, you know, first off, a personal budget check-in. So are you sticking to your budget? Are you on track to meet any expenses? Are you accumulating savings? Do you even have a budget? That's a really good test. And if you do, you should be checking in on it monthly at least. Uh, personal tax filings. Um, so sometimes someone gets scared to file taxes because they think they owe the government money. That's definitely your worst plan to go. And the further, uh, further more years you get behind, the more likely the government is to start taking drastic actions against you, like freezing bank accounts or seizing assets. Um, even checking in on your credit report. So as I just mentioned, don't be driven by your credit score by any means, but it is important to make sure that your credit report is accurate, is up to date, that you're not being penalized for maybe someone else's delinquency on your debts, but all the debts that you are paying on time are reflecting accurately. So it's just a good thing to keep on top of. Every Canadian can get a copy of their credit report once per year from each of the credit un- uh, each of the credit bureaus of Equifax and TransUnion. And I would say skip the extra cost of getting your credit score because it's irrelevant. As I said, don't chase it. And every lender calculates their own credit score. So I feel like it's you know a little bit of a bait and switch when everyone advertises online credit score for a fee, but it's nothing that the banks are going to use. They do their own math anyway. So I definitely mm-hmm. recommend skipping that. Um, I want to throw in here too, you know, if, if we've already sort of outlined or if Blair sort of already outlined a situation that you're in and you're gulping and thinking, oh, yikes, I need to do something. This is what you need to do. Give Sands and Associates a call. 1-800-661-3030 or go to the website sands-trustee.com and book that appointment. You've talked a lot about uh, just making minimum monthly payments as a very clear sign that you need to do something different, I guess. Oh, definitely, Elaine. And again, that's in our last few years of surveys, the number one most reported warning sign was just people finding, hey, I'm just making minimum payments each month. I'm not getting further ahead. So it is getting, you know, the consciousness is out there that minimum payments are designed to keep you in debt, not to help you pay off debt. And it's not always the case that, you know, the big balances are, are the biggest problems. You know, even a $1,000 credit card bill um, could take you 10 years to pay off if you only make the, the minimum monthly payments at 18%, uh, and you're going to pay almost double that amount that you originally charged. So you can imagine a thousand dollars in ten years from now. I'm still going to be paying it off. Well, if you're only making the minimum payments, yeah, that that is correct. So a huge warning sign. If all you're able to do is make the minimum payments, your credit score probably looks great. Your budget might be okay, but those balances that might be large and looming, um, they're not getting paid down in any sort of a, of a speedy fashion. 
I know you've got a really good list of sort of the common debt mistakes that folks make dealing with debt. And as a result, it just makes it far more challenging for them as they go through this. Yeah, the, the one that breaks my heart the most, Elaine, I know we've, we've said it a number of times, but unfortunately, I still do see clients that have done this, uh, is cashing in RRSPs. So cashing in their retirement funds. And sometimes they've gotten advice from the bank. And I'm just going to assume it's someone that wasn't well informed, they didn't have nefarious intent. Sometimes they've gotten no advice from anyone, but just thought they should do it. And what I'm talking about is you've got this retirement fund and RRSP, you decide to pull that money out because you have some debt. Why this is such bad idea, a bad idea is first, you have that money saved for a reason. It's for your retirement. And what are you going to do if that money is not there? You're just going to be giving yourself more hardship in the future because that money is probably going to be very difficult to replace. Um, Secondly, uh, many people understand this, but some don't. RSP withdrawals are taxable. So you got the tax deduction when you put the money in. When you pull that money out, right off the top, there's going to be a withholding tax. Maybe it's 20 to 30%, but that might not even be enough. You might find at the end of the year, you think you've done everything right. You pulled out your RSPs, you paid off the debt, and then suddenly the government is coming to you and saying, well, we need a whole lot more tax on those RSP funds. And then now you, you thought you were stressed when you owed the bank money. Imagine when you owe CRA money, how that feels. Um, and folks need to understand, because I think this is why they cash in the RRSPs, they think, well, if I have to file a bankruptcy, I'm going to lose this stuff anyway, so you know, let me at least be in control, you know, uh, control my own destiny. And the number one thing for people to know is RRSPs are 100% protected. If you file for bankruptcy, if you have whatever amount of money in RRSPs, you know, as long as you haven't thrown in a ton of money in the year prior to you filing for bankruptcy, which usually is not the case, but anything that's been there for more than 12 months is 100% protected. Nobody can ever force you to cash in those funds. It's not going to require you to pay more into your bankruptcy. You could deal with the debt, still save your retirement out the other side, and that's the outcome I, I wish more people could achieve rather than having cashed in their RRSPs. Often they end up with the tax bill. It's not enough to clear the debt. They might end up in my office anyway. And it's what a night and day situation to finishing a bankruptcy and still having your retirement intact to finishing a bankruptcy and then starting to save again. Excellent. Um, the next the next part of what we were going to talk about has been relying on debt as a debt solution. Can you really explain that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what a lot of people try to do is, as a first step when you find yourself in debt is kind of to borrow your way out of it. So to say, okay, I've got all this debt. I've got it at, you know, 19 or 29 or more percent interest. Why don't I get a consolidation loan? Ideally, it'll be one single payment, which will simplify things for me. And hopefully, it's going to be a much lower interest rate, maybe something closer to 10 or 12 percent, uh, not the 20 or 30 percent they might be paying. So it sounds great in theory, and it can work well. Uh, but quite often, what people run into is they're not able to qualify for consolidation loan unless they're compelled to make some really poor financial decisions for them that put the bank in a much better position than they would have been in otherwise. And these are things like using an asset as a collateral. So maybe pledging a house or a car or a secured investment or something like that. You've now allowed a creditor, if you don't pay, you've given them a direct line to take an asset from you. Whereas if you hadn't pledged that asset, they would have a much tougher time. You might be able to take steps to protect yourself. But if you've granted security for something that you owe, again, I see 
this often with a vehicle. People have a paid-off vehicle. They get a consolidation loan. They pledge their car as collateral. And then sometimes the terms of these loans are if you miss a few payments, two or three payments, we take your car, we put it in storage until you pay the loan off, and we charge you 30 to $50 a night in storage fees, which essentially means we're taking your car and you're not getting it back. So it can yeah. be very, um, you know, just an incredibly bad outcome if you pledge an asset as collateral. But also what can be even worse is starting to bring in co-signers. So starting to say, you know, the bank's willing to give me this loan, but I need mom, dad, brother, sister, or friend, or someone to sign on the dotted line to be responsible. You've now just enlarged that debt problem to include people that you love and that love you and want to help you. But if you need to restructure your debts in the per- in the future, like doing a proposal or perhaps a bankruptcy, whoever has co-signed those debts is going to be left 100% responsible for those debts. So my impression, my, my advice is it's never worth getting a consolidation loan if you have to pledge an asset or pledge a co-signer. It almost always is going to lead to a bad outcome. And we're inundated, and we just have a few seconds left, but inundated with ads telling us who to go to to get the help. And and clearly, somebody like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee, is the best place to go to get help with debt. Absolutely, Elaine. We're the only people that are licensed by the federal government to actually help you legally restructure your debt, and it costs nothing to meet with us. It's a free confidential consultation. You'll meet with me or a member of my team. Guaranteed you're going to learn more and feel better at the end of the consultation and not going to cost you anything. And here's the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or you can visit the website, make an appointment through there, sans-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So this segment is all about what happens if my spouse files for bankruptcy. And licensed insolvency trustee Blair Manton is going to answer some pretty commonly asked questions about how your credit rating, your debts, assets, income will and won't be impacted if your spouse declares personal bankruptcy in British Columbia. So money obviously plays a big role in households and relationships. Blair, can you talk a little bit about the general impact that debts can have in this? Oh, certainly, Elaine. You know, from the clients that I deal with, you know, it's definitely the case that a money problem um, can cause relationship problems, can cause health problems. You know, it can be so much bigger than just the numbers on the page. Uh, and the recent research really bears this out. So um, some research by RBC uh, found that half of Canadians are just under at 47% that were surveyed said finances are one of the biggest stressors um, in their relationship. And in the same survey, they dealt a little bit, delved a little bit deeper and said roughly one third of people said they found it hard to talk about finances with their partner and weren't comfortable talking about each other's financial situations. And I see that very regularly as I'm sitting down uh, with clients, with couples, and sometimes I can see when one person is, is telling me about their debt, this is also the first time the partner might be hearing about that as well. Um, the survey indicated that just under a third said they only talk to their partner about finances a couple of times a year, uh, with 5% saying they never do this. And I'd actually be surprised that 5% isn't a little bit underreported because from my experience, a lot of couples just seem to you know, postpone or, or procrastinate in having that discussion because they think it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and it's more men than women are actually uncomfortable talking about finances. So it was about 38% of men said that they were uncomfortable compared to about 25% um, of women. So it's not always the stereotype, uh, you know, the male in the relationship is handling all the finances and the woman is less financially sophisticated. I think that stereotype went away a generation ago. Um, this research is showing it's actually women are a little bit more willing to have um, that difficult conversation, perhaps about financial transparency uh, with their partner. 
And it's just really important that as a, when you're in a relationship that you do understand the potential impact on the family unit um, and on each partner of the debt that's brought into the relationship and how those things can change um, versus the debt that's accumulated as a family. Interesting. So um, I want to ask you just a personal question, Blair. The statistic about men, you know, more men than women express their discomfort with talking about finances. Did that surprise you or does that really sort of come out in, in your regular dealings with folks? You know, I don't think it surprised me. I think it does turn the bit of the stereotype on its head. But from my experience, um, I think men sometimes have a little bit of a tougher time, um, especially even reaching out for help, Um, you know, having that vulnerability, saying, okay, you know, I'm admitting what I don't know, or perhaps there's some mistakes that I've made. Um, I think just being a guy myself, sometimes it's tough, you know, to actually admit that you Mm -hmm. don't know um, or that you maybe have made a mistake where I think women sometimes are a little bit more likely to reach out for help a little bit sooner, which is definitely a strength of character compared to, to a man. Right. Interesting. Okay. So what are some of the impacts of one person's debt uh, to a spouse or a partner? How does that work? Well, the first thing that I want people to understand, uh, and most people are surprised about this, but in Canada, spouses do not automatically share responsibility for each other's debt. So just because you marry somebody and that person might have a bunch of debt, you're not automatically responsible just because you become married or because you've been common law for a couple of years. You know, legally, you may be in a union, but the debt that you brought into that union remains your own. It doesn't become a joint debt. And a lot of people think there's the old saying, you know, you marry somebody, you marry their debt. Well, you really don't. Um, now, where debt does become become shared is if you've actively co-signed um, on a joint debt together, um, but that's, you know, an active thing. You would know it's a joint account. You would know you have co-signed. Um, so you really have to understand someone bringing debt into a marriage doesn't mean that both partners have, partners have to be responsible to it. But where your spouse can be responsible for some debt, um, first off, is if you separate. So upon the breakdown of a relationship, um, if in that relationship there was a bunch of debt accumulated, and it was accumulated in one partner's name only, but it was for the benefit of both both parties, that debt can be split by going to court and it's under the Family Law Act. So it is possible uh, if you're in a relationship, in a marriage, upon the dissolution of that relationship, some of the debt could be shared. Uh, but the more common way that debt um, becomes joint is, again, if you're co-signing, uh, guaranteeing, or sometimes even being a co-card holder um, on a credit card account. So you want to always make sure um, you understand that if you are going to put your finances together, if you're going to start borrowing jointly, um, that the liability you've got at that point um, is for both of you. And it can be a joint and several liability, which means if one partner is unable to pay, well, then the other partner is held for 100% of the responsibility. Okay. So I just want to throw in at this point, if, you, if you've been listening to Blair talk about the situation and you already know that you've heard enough to know that you need to take some action, uh, give Sands & Associates a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 or go to their website, sands-trustee.com and set up an appointment and just see uh, may, if your situation warrants some action, some very uh, serious action, then Sands & Associates are the ones to help you through that. Uh, Can you explain a little bit how it works if one spouse or a partner is filing bankruptcy? What does it mean, or does it mean, I guess, does the other partner go through it too? 
it absolutely doesn't mean that the other person is declared bankrupt, Elaine. So that's another really important thing because sometimes people really hesitate to reach out um, saying, you know, I know I need the help, but I just really don't want it to impact, um, you know, my spouse or partner. I don't want them to be dragged into bankruptcy the same as me. Um, and what happens is that bankruptcy is a completely individual proceeding. So one spouse could file for bankruptcy and have little to zero impact um, on the other spouse if there's no shared assets and no shared debts. And just just by filing for bankruptcy, there's nothing that happens that automatically shifts responsibility for unpaid debts uh, for one to the other. So unless you're a co-signer, unless you're joint on the account, uh, one partner choosing to file for bankruptcy or even making a consumer proposal um, is not going to have an impact on the other partner. Just that co-signing thing, that's the thing that will get you. Uh, so to be sure, you, you know what your situation, I guess, is going in at that point. Mm-hmm, absolutely. What about assets? Yeah, that's a great, great point, Elaine. Um, so a lot of people think, you know, when you go into bankruptcy, you're losing all of your assets, uh, which is not typically the case. Most people end up retaining all of their assets because there are provincial exemptions that allow you to keep certain things like all of your RRSPs, uh, your clothing, your furniture, a vehicle, your tools of the trade, um, you know, even real estate up to a certain amount of equity. So in general, most people that file for bankruptcy are able to retain their assets. But be aware that if you're in, again, a marriage, cohabitation, whatever sort of legal union, uh, if one spouse files for bankruptcy, any assets that are held by the other spouse have no bearing whatsoever on that bankruptcy seating. So that's why it's so important for spouses to really understand um, you know, who has the debt and is it shared or is it a single responsibility? Because I've seen it far too many times where one partner um, in the union has significant assets. Maybe they've got, you know, fifty or $60,000 of savings they've built up over time. Um, the other person in the relationship has that equivalent amount of debt. And they think, well, you know, we should just use the family assets to pay off the family debt. And they end up at zero at the end of the day. They've used all the assets to pay the debt, which, you know, no one would say that they've done a bad thing. They've, you know, really just tried to honor the obligations. But legally, um, the part partner who had the debt could have restructured that debt, either done a proposal or a bankruptcy, and there would be no legal claim on the other partner's savings in this example, you know, the 50 or 60,000. So the couple at the end of the day could be so much better off, have that nest egg, have the future ready for them uh, with those savings, um, or they could have misunderstood what debt they actually owed and have transferred assets to the spouse um, who had the debt and ended up, again, with, with nothing net at the end of the day. So you definitely want to be careful. Now, if you do have some shared assets and you file for bankruptcy, um, things can come into play. So if there's, um, you know, an RESP, for example, where there's both partners, uh, both both parents are listed on it, uh, it's possible in the bankruptcy that, that the one parent share would have to get paid in or sold. Uh, but typically, um, not much happens to assets in bankruptcy because most of the time when someone has filed for bankruptcy, um, they don't have a whole lot of assets to begin with. Uh, one really important thing to keep in mind is the worst possible thing you can do if you're contemplating filing for bankruptcy or restructuring your debt is to start transferring your assets out of your name, start giving them to your spouse or giving them to other people saying, you know, I know I'm going to lose this. I want to put this out of arm's reach of creditors. You know, oftentimes you just know when you say it out loud, that's not sounding like something that's reasonable and good to do. And if someone were to do that, it's all recoverable. It's all traceable. It ends up being more of a problem for the person who the asset is transferred to because then they're held accountable to give the asset back. If it's not there, you know, legal action could be taken against them. So be very careful if you're have a bunch of debt, just don't transfer assets unless you get some really good advice ahead of time.
Okay, key on that is really good advice from a licensed insolvency trustee is the is the best way to go, and Sands and Associates is is your place to go as well. What about income, Blair? I bet that comes up for folks. Well, for sure. And when you go into bankruptcy, um, the income you earn, if your spouse is in bankruptcy, it's yours and yours alone. So there's nothing that you need to worry about if your spouse filed for bankruptcy. Um, your spouse is going to be doing a report um, to the trustee showing the household income, the household budget, what's the income and the expenses. But as the non-bankrupt spouse, you're not required to pay any portion of your income into the bankruptcy. And also, you could go one step further. So the trustee is going to ask for the household family income because we want to assist with budgeting and we have to determine the appropriate payment in a bankruptcy. But the non-bankrupt spouse could say, you know what, I don't consent to provide any of this information and it can't be held against the person who's in bankruptcy if their spouse just decides not to to provide information. The trustee has a different set of calculations they apply, um, but it it is the case if your spouse filed for bankruptcy, you could choose to give the trustee your income information, you could choose not to give the trustee your income information, but if you are the non-bankrupt spouse, you have no payment obligation no matter what your income is. Okay. Now, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit to the end because this is where I think Sands & Associates really shines in terms of how they help or how you help people talk about situations so that you can either get to the bottom of it or help you figure out how to, uh, you know, steps forward. So can you talk a little bit about suggestions uh, to give folks on how to start that conversation about dealing with debt, something that they can do together? Sure. A couple of really important things. Uh, First off, be open and honest with your partner about your finances and your concerns and realize that you may have different levels of financial literacy, but by having that first conversation, it's a really chance, it's a real chance for you to start that process of learning money skills like every other skill. They take time to build, uh, but you will get good at it over time. Um, Second point is to really start making things real by writing it down. So you need to have a written budget, a written plan, have some written goals so you know what you're tracking towards. And, you know, one final thing that I always advocate for encouraging financial transparency is to get your credit report at least once a year. Both parties in a relationship, both spouses, sit down, review it together. You're probably going to find some inaccuracies there, but you'll also be completely transparent with each other about your obligations, how things are going, and that can trigger some really good discussions also. Good discussions and a lot of preemptive work that that might be able to stop a bad habit or a bad situation from getting any worse. And I just think that's such great advice. So to book your free confidential debt consultation to connect with a friendly, non-judgmental Sands and Associate representative in one of the local BC offices, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 or visit the website sands-trustee.com. This segment's all about debt solutions. Blair's going to explain to us all about a consumer proposal, the basics and the advantages. We're going to learn what a consumer proposal is. Don't be afraid or concerned that you haven't heard of this term before. Uh, It's going to cover who can file one and how this super flexible debt solution could work as a debt management strategy for you. And and Blair from Sands & Associates is going to explain. And Blair, you've described consumer proposals as a solution for folks to consolidate without borrowing and cut debt without bankruptcy. Uh, But before we get into the details and advantages, can you take us through some of the real basics to a consumer proposal and then we'll do a bit of a deep dive on it. 
Oh, certainly. With, with pleasure, Elaine. I think I've often said, and the listeners would know, I think one of my reasons for being on this earth is to make a consumer proposal more well-known because it is the most powerful debt solution you might never have heard of. And I've just seen the impact on individuals, how life-changing it can be. Someone just feels very despondent, thinks bankruptcy is their only way out from unmanageable debt. And this proposal can be just a complete lifeline, allowing them to restructure and feel good about the solution that they've chosen. So what a consumer proposal is, it's a formal process. So it's a legally supervised by a licensed insolvency trustee, and it's where you make a restructuring of your debt or a legal offer to your creditors to settle your debts in full, but without requiring full payment. So consumer proposals usually offer to repay a percentage of the total debts owed within a period of up to five years. And if you need to go longer than five years, there's different options, but typically a five-year term is the maximum time someone should be paying off a debt, in our opinion. So a consumer proposal gives an affordable option for someone who wants to consolidate their debt, but maybe they don't qualify with the bank or they can only qualify with a co-signer, for example. Uh, but it also allows you to reduce the amount of debt that you're paying back down to something that you can afford. So even if the bank would agree to consolidate, but there's just not a way that you could afford to repay 100% of the debt plus the interest charges on top of that, um, that's what a consumer proposal can do. It can reduce the debt and stop the interest. And in terms of what types of debt can be included, uh, it's almost easier to say what types of debt can't be included. It's pretty all-encompassing, everything from uh, credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, income taxes, personal debts, um, just about any debt that's owing can be restructured and reduced as part of a consumer proposal proceeding. Okay, so with that, there's got to be some pretty strict requirements on who can actually do a consumer proposal, or is that the flexibility of it, that everybody or it pertains, possibly pertains to everybody? Well, the objective of when the government created a consumer proposal was to give uh, people a means of avoiding bankruptcy, of avoiding, you know, a bigger loss to their creditors, for example, and then, you know, having the, the personal impact of having gone through a bankruptcy. So they deliberately made a consumer proposal very accessible, uh, very easy to qualify for, uh, with the hope that more people would start to choose proposals over bankruptcy. And what we've seen is, my gosh, that trend has taken off like a rocket ship. Uh, the most recent statistics in B.C. is it's almost 80% of people who are filing a formal insolvency proceeding are now filing a consumer proposal and 20% are filing bankruptcy. Obviously, before proposals existed, that was 100% bankruptcy. And even as recent as five or six years ago, it was more, you know, 60, 40 more proposals than bankruptcies, but it's really, really increased in the last few years. In terms of who can do a consumer proposal, um, anyone who owes more than $1,000 and less than $250,000, and that's excluding the mortgage on a principal residence. So that's a pretty wide band of individuals who are in debt, and for the most part, it's in the range of, you know, twenty dollars to $60,000 of debt is probably where we see most proposals, but we can see some, you know, as low as five dollars or $10,000 of debt, and sometimes there's hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt where we're doing a proposal on, because maybe there's, you know, a business failure or an ICBC award or something along those lines. Um, it is possible to do a joint consumer proposal, so say for a husband and wife, or even just two people whose finances are interlinked, um, you do a joint consumer proposal, and if you do that, the debt threshold raises to five hundred thousand dollars so it's definitely it's a widely flexible tool it can handle most um, situations where people find themselves overextended financially okay um, I just want to mention too that if this is already 
sort of describing your situation and you want to learn more about the consumer proposal or sit down and talk with somebody about it to see if it's right for you, if it's the right uh, action to take, very easy to do. Uh, give Sands & Associates a call. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030, uh, or visit the website sands-trustee.com uh, to make that appointment. So where does a licensed insolvency trustee come in in this consumer proposal world, Blair? Well, in order to access a consumer proposal, you have to choose the licensed insolvency trustee that you'd like to work with. You can't do a consumer proposal on your own. Lawyers aren't empowered to help you with this remedy. It's only a licensed insolvency trustee can assist you. And when you make a consumer proposal, what happens is you stop making payments to all of your creditors who are included in the proposal, and they're barred from contacting you from payment or charging you any interest. It's the same protection as if you had filed for bankruptcy. The trustee steps in the middle between you and the people that you money to and puts a stop to any creditor harassment, any collection actions, including calls, any court proceedings, even any wage seizures. You know, if you're getting paid in a few days and the trustee has the documents filed in time, we're going to stop that wage seizure and not let it happen ever again. So the trustee is really your, your administrator of your proposal, the person that stands in the middle and gets the deal done for you. Uh, once the creditors have agreed to accept your proposal, so the way a proposal works, you file it with the trustee and then there's a period of 45 days where the trustee sends the proposal to your creditors, and then the creditors vote back to accept or reject the proposal. 95% of the time, they accept the first offer in a proposal. 99% of the time, if we negotiate, we still reach a deal. So it's still a very, very high success rate. And once the proposal is accepted, you make payments typically on a monthly basis to your trustee, and then the trustee disseminates those payments or distributes them out uh, to the people that you owe money to a few times a year, based on whoever owes you the most gets the most money, whoever owes you, whoever you owe the least uh, gets a little bit less. It's all on a pro rata fair basis. Okay. Um, the other cool thing and, and uh, that Sands & Associates offers is the opportunity for, for you to not get in that situation again, to learn some skills, to figure out what went wrong, how it went wrong, and then how to make sure it doesn't happen again with some really good counseling. Yeah, that's such an important part of the process. So, you know, it's one thing to reduce the debt, and we're very proud of what we can do, um, but it is the two financial counseling sessions, one-on-one -on -one sessions with our professionals here. You'll understand some great tips about budgeting, about financial goal setting, about how to rebuild your credit with the whole idea of making it, you know, a one-time pit stop on your life. You do this, you get, you know, some good corrections, uh, and then you move forward with some really good skills. Um, and, in, and in finishing off this segment, I think it's really important um, to talk about the advantages to why a consumer proposal works better or is a better choice over other debt management options like a consolidation loaner or even bankruptcy. And you've got some really good reasons why the consumer proposal works. Yeah, I think three big reasons here that we'll, we'll go through. So one is that it can cut your debt and stop the interest. So sometimes if you look around, if you're going to see a credit counselor, for example, they can stop the interest, but you still have to pay back 100% of the debt. When you're dealing with a trustee, it's based on what you can afford to pay back. And quite often, it's in the range of 30% repayment, maybe 20, maybe 40, something along those lines. But it's often a very significant reduction in the total amount payable, and that's only available with the consumer proposal. 
Um, a second advantage is it actually allows you to keep your assets. So if you want to keep paying on your mortgage or keep paying on your car, a consumer proposal doesn't require you to surrender either of those, but it does give you the option. Let's say you're significantly underwater on your car loan. You owe way more than what the car is worth. You could decide as part of your proposal, I want to give this car back, have it you know, collected from me as part of the proposal, and I'm going to get a new vehicle so I can end that obligation, but it's not your requirement to do so. And the last thing is just really to understand this is not a permanent mark on your credit history. It's something that you will recover from probably quicker than you think. Uh, the day you file a proposal, six years after that day is when it comes off your credit report like it had never happened, um, or three years from when you pay it off, whatever is sooner. Um, but it is the case people can restructure and rebuild their credit even as soon as a couple of years after they've signed the proposal. They often start to get offers of credit, and definitely six years from the day that you filed that proposal, so probably a year after you finished paying it off, it's gone. It's like it never happened, and you never have to say yes to that question, have you filed a bankruptcy? You haven't. You did a completely different remedy called a consumer proposal. And can you just explain in the last few seconds that we've got, how do you get paid? How does a licensed insolvency trustee get paid in a consumer proposal? Well, that's a great point, Elaine. There's nothing extra the person is ever required to pay. Whatever is determined they can afford to pay back, maybe it's 30% of the debt, for example, the trustee gets paid out of that. It's all set by government tariff, and it's taken off of the payments before they're distributed to creditors. Very much on the up and up in every way, shape, and form. And, and uh, licensed insolvency trustee are the only ones who can facilitate this for you. Uh, if you want to learn about more of your options and choose a debt-free plan that's the best one for you, book your free and confidential debt consultation with Sands and Associates. Here's their phone number again, 1-800-661-3030, or visit the website, sands-trustee.com. Talking about borrowing as a debt solution, uh, lots of things to consider. Debt consolidation loans, pretty popular solution uh, that a lot of people think about when they want a solution to streamline multiple debts. So there's some benefits and help resolve some of the aspects of the common debt management challenges, but they aren't ideal in every situation. And that's why this segment's a good one. So Blair is going to take us through some key consideration when it comes to borrowing and non-borrowing solutions if consolidating your debt is something you want to do. So, Blair, can you start by kind of outlining some of the basic points of that lender-based debt consolidation option that folks are sometimes looking at? Well, sure, Elaine. You know, when most people say debt consolidation, they're really referring to a debt consolidation loan, which is a pretty basic concept. You're going to borrow a lump sum amount from one lender, and you're going to pay off or deal with multiple other debts. So the idea, the benefits in mind of this is you're going to have fewer payments to juggle. So things are going to be a little bit more simple and easy to keep track of things. Ideally, you're going to free up some cash flow because the whole point of consolidating is that the new lender should be able to give you a lower interest rate than what you're already paying or else you know, there wouldn't be much point in consolidating. Um, and then you'll also should have a timeline on when your debt will be paid off. Now, there's a number of different ways that you can consolidate the debt if you're going to be borrowing to do so. The typical ones, you know, your typical debt consolidation loan is where I've just described you approach the bank, you say, I owe these five credit cards, I'd like to borrow from you, let's pay off the credit cards and I will pay you back. That's a very traditional type of consolidation loan. Um, a home equity loan is becoming more and more common as real estate values continue to increase, and that can be sometimes called a second mortgage or refinancing your mortgage. And with that, you're just borrowing more money against your house. Um, ideally paying a much lower interest rate and paying off some high interest debt. 
Um, sometimes consolidation can take the form of a line of credit uh, or an overdraft. Um, so again, just another way of borrowing a different mechanism. Uh, and then finally, sometimes with credit cards, you can consolidate using a balance transfer. Um, often this is your more expensive or most expensive option because there's usually transaction fees and interest costs that are typically higher than other options. But as you can see, there's a number of different ways you can try to borrow to consolidate your debts. Okay, so all of that sounds pretty good, but I know from talking to you about this before, there are some pretty common challenges that folks run into with consolidation loans or financing. So what are the things that people should consider before committing to that consolidation loan? Right. You know, the first thing is just about everyone that I've ever met with when I ask, okay, what have you tried so far? Well, I tried to consolidate. Okay. And banks said no, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Even with perfect credit, banks said no, right? Yeah, unfortunately. And the challenge is that consolidations are very difficult to qualify, and especially at a rate that's going to make them compelling. If you think about it intuitively, it kind of makes sense. You're approaching the bank saying you're in a risky financial situation, and you want the bank to risk, the new bank to risk their money to pay off all of your old debt. You know, what's their assurance that you're going to be able to pay off the new bank and they're going to get all of their money back they've just paid out. So what some lenders will do is if they will advance some money to you, it could be at very high interest rates. Uh, You've got to be careful too if you're looking online and not one of the major banks. Sometimes what you think you're applying for is a consolidation loan. It's actually just a lead generation site. They're going to be selling your information to a number of folks um, and then you you may or may not be able to be approved but it's typically not going to be at a very good rate. So I would generally recommend, you know, start with the big banks and you know if you've got solid credit and some assets to pledge and you're comfortable doing so you might be approved but the vast majority of people that i see they start with their bank and they're rather shocked that even with great credit they're not able to get approved to do a consolidation loan what happens to folks who who do out of the few that actually get a, a consolidation loan what kinds of i don't know assurances do they have to have to give the the bank Well, and that can be a really critical thing, Elaine, because it's very few people will get a consolidation loan if the bank has concerns unless they're willing to give some, as we've said, extra assurances to the bank that they will recover their money. And that often takes one of two forms. Uh, One is a co-signer or a co-borrower. So the bank says, oh, sure, you know, we'll take a risk on you, but we'd like someone else to also be responsible there. And what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, maybe they go to a family member or a friend and they say, you know, this is never going to be triggered. You know, don't worry about it. And if it is triggered, you know, at most it's 50-50 you know, your exposure is going to be half of what I borrowed. And that's just not the case at all. So I meet with some people where they've got a debt consolidation loan, you know, it hasn't worked out to their benefit, they're not able to pay it off. And they really need to file a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. But because they've got a guarantor on that debt, you know, it might be a family member or a friend, you know, I can help them legally, they're not going to be responsible for this anymore. But they know morally, their friend is now going to be on the hook. And they just feel pretty bad leaving someone in that situation that didn't contemplate it. So if the only way you can qualify for consolidation loan is by getting a co-signer or a co-borrower or by pledging an asset, which is the other way. Sometimes, yeah, we'll consolidate your debt, but, you know, give us some security over your car or your house or something like those along those lines. So if, if either of those things are your only options to consolidate, I definitely recommend you explore a bunch of other options before you start thinking about pledging assets or giving a co-signer. Okay, I just want to take a moment too uh, to say, Blair, uh, if this information is overwhelming uh, to folks who are listening, make it easier on yourself. Book that appointment with Sands and Associates. Get the answers you're looking for. One eight hundred six six one. 
30-30. Um, do you want to talk about the other personal pitfalls with, with consolidation or where do you want to go with this? Because there's so much to cover and we've yeah, only we, got about so three much, minutes. So little time. I know we've all got great yeah, information. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, let's just touch a little bit more on one final pitfall, which is just the cost of doing a consolidation. Then let's talk about some other options that you don't need to borrow about. So okay. just the final pitfall here is just even if you are approved, just make sure you can afford the consolidation. So sometimes people are turned down by the big banks. They end up going to, you know, lenders that sound a lot like payday lenders, and it's a 40% interest rate. It's ridiculous charges. So just be careful that the consolidation is actually going to solve your problem, going to move you ahead. It's not going to be an unaffordable payment that's, you know, just going to fail a couple months down the road. Excellent. Okay, so key points of consolidation options that don't require to you uh, that money needs to be borrowed in order for you to pay this thing off. Yeah, there's two great options that are out there. One, I think, is far superior to the other, and I'll tell you why. But two things people can consider if they need to consolidate their debt and they don't want to borrow money to do so. One is called a credit counseling debt management plan. So if you go look online or you'll see various advertisements for credit counselors, what they're able to do, because they're essentially paid by your creditors as collection agents, is they can negotiate an interest freeze on all of your debts. Now, not any of your government debt or student loans, but any typical bank debt with a credit counselor, they'd be able to say, okay, you owe $20,000. Let's get you to pay back that full $20,000 over five years. We're going to charge you a small fee on top of it, but look what you've saved in the interest. Doesn't this make a whole lot of sense? And a lot of the times you say, well, yeah, this is far better than what I'm doing. I'm going to save money. I can afford to pay everything back. It's going to take five years. There's a little hit to my credit because I've, I've compromised on the interest, but this sounds pretty good. And I agree, it does sound pretty good, but there is generally a better option for people to consider, and that's called a consumer proposal, and that's what we do here at Sands & Associates. So I definitely encourage people to you know, investigate all of their options, but if you stack up a, a credit counseling debt management plan against a consumer proposal, you'll see there's some pretty significant advantages with the consumer proposal, the main one being that a consumer proposal actually reduces your debt. So where we talked about in the credit counseling plan, you've got to pay back the full $20,000. A consumer proposal, because it's with a trustee who uses the law, it's a matter of what can you afford to pay back. It might be half of that debt. It might be a third of that debt. You know, typically on $20,000, maybe a 30% repayment would be $6,000. So a difference quite significantly compared to a credit counseling plan. And as soon as you've paid off that reduced balance in a consumer proposal, the debt is fully discharged. There's no one coming after you for the other half or the other 30% or whatever. So a consumer proposal reduces the debt, stops the interest, and it can include all debt including government debts and student loans. So it's a more powerful option and definitely worthwhile anyone considering, whether considering consolidating, whether it's borrowing or non-borrowing, make sure a consumer proposal is one of those stones that you do overturn to see if there's something there for you. And the best thing about Sands & Associates is you can learn more about the consumer proposals, debt consolidation, as well as the other options in order to deal with your debt. Uh, Sands & Associates has a very, very friendly team. They have offices all over British Columbia. They are debt smart with heart, and its free confidential debt consultations are available in person or remotely, So, and you can book easily. Go to the website sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.